Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support and being with us here every Monday night. We're going to change things up a little bit tonight. We're going to change the history timeline of which we are going to talk about. Tonight's going to be Jeff's night, but before we get to Jeff, let's introduce the one and only Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir? Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing quite well, quite well. The kid's staying out at Grandma's house tonight. Got a little bit of peace going on here. Uh, oh, that's got to be a, a nice little shift. She transferred schools, so now I don't have to take her to school early in the morning. She's riding the bus, and everything's going good, but no one cares about that. We want to hear what's going on with the world and the baby behind Jeff. He's got the, the sons hanging out. He's he's going to host the show tonight. So, Jeff, if you want to introduce our guest and take it away, fella. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he walked off. Sorry. <laughs> so all that planning to oh. do a kid's episode, and it's it's all for nothing. Now we've got to scramble. What are we going to do, guys? <laughs> <laughs> no, Jeff had a great yeah. idea for this week, and I think it's – perfect um especially with uh jeff's experience so without any more of my ramblings uh go ahead jeff uh, oh man i didn't okay you right <laughs> so out the gate with get... it fella yeah i mean we um, can we can dip our toe into it a little bit and before we just jump in but i thought we just jump in whole hog but well yeah so i guess to fill the listeners in uh and hopefully some of the watchers um i uh you know, been reading with the old breed and, and there's some things I want to talk about uh, having to do with that book. Uh, but it just so happened that I'm starting the part where, um, you know, they're, they're, they're hitting Okinawa and, you know, the, the, uh, the ultimate April fool's day, April 1st, 1945. And it, um, I, I never made this connection before, but this was April 1st of 2004 is the anniversary of, you know, when I went across the berm from Kuwait into Iraq, we were staged in Kuwait about two weeks. And um, going in Iraq was the most anticlimactic <laughs> part of my deployment. And I really enjoyed, um, you know, reading uh, Sledgehammer's words about, uh, you know, those first few weeks almost for him uh, in that campaign. And the uh just the comparisons were just a little too much to not mention and and you know look this is not i don't I, this is not about me specifically you know but just there's some commonalities of of just young kids at war and kind of the joshing back and forth that i picked up in and with the old breed and, and some things and um one of those commonalities and i and i shared with you guys is is i, I my <laughs> Not not necessarily the New Testament, but this was certainly my Bible. Um, this was just one of those handy green notebooks that everybody in the military gets, and I had a couple of them. And um, doesn't going quite through, fit into the breast pocket here, of a P forty two, though. No, but it fits into the cargo <laughs> pocket of a DCU. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and that's that's where it lived. I mean, it's kind of formed to my leg, right? Um, and I look through here from time to time because. It just reminds me uh, of so many different things, and um, you know, I, I can—I mean, just just this opening, just just the front cover, right? 
this is some of my sensitive items, right? So these are all my weapon systems, rifle, machine guns, belt fed stuff. And then, you know, all the day sites and night sites and all the serial numbers for them. And, you know, uh, every serial number for every, you know, radio and speaker and hand mic and everything, every, all the sensitive items, you know, that I had, uh, that I signed for as a way too young person to be in charge of that many things. Um, and, you know, the amount of yellow smoke and green smoke and Willie Pete and just so many things. I, I have my entire inventory of all of my duffel bags, my A bag, my B bag, and just kind of scrolling through. Just to put a pause on that real quick. Is that something that is required of a soldier or someone of rank, or is that just something that you decide to do personally just because? Well, it was certainly required of everybody that was in Fox Troop um, because we did have a little bit more than than usual being in the type of, you know, uh, it was it was a it was called a BRT, a Brigade Reconnaissance Troop. And it was very unique unit, to say the least. It's, there's never going to be anything like that again. It just it doesn't blend with the modern army. But it was just kind of this flash in the pan from uh 03 to 05 and then it and then that was it cased colors it turned into another unit and they deployed and did some amazing things further on with a much larger contingent of guys but there was about 48 of us 48 to 50 in this unit and um we trained for a year we went to war we came back and it it dissipated so it was just a really um really cool thing to be a part of i can't say that enough um well without getting too much into it just kind of the reader's digest version because i'm interested i'm sure henry and our listeners are what what was it that differentiated that unit to a regular run-of-the-mill um you know frontline infantry group at that time okay yeah so i mean just you know i was not in the infantry i was in the cavalry so there's there's really only one job left in the cab and that's being a scout and just that alone is a much smaller group of individuals for for all the 19 deltas out there you know you know who you are and you know why you did it um so from day one of training it's very different um you you're an infantryman mixed with everything that you have to be um you were kind of a swiss army knife for the army so you not only had to be proficient in infantry tactics but armor tactics as well because scouts can either be light or heavy and a light scout would be either just completely dismounted on foot or assigned to a humvee platoon or a heavy scout would be assigned to the bradley fighting vehicle so we had to go through armored reconnaissance school you had to be proficient with every weapon system, demolitions. You had to be your own engineer. Uh, of naturally being a scout, you have to know land nav, you know, from beyond what the common infantryman, you know, is trained on. So that alone um, gives you a little more of a chip on your shoulder, right? Um, but then this particular unit. So I was in a regular infantry battalion, and it's just a scout platoon. They they were assigned to headquarters companies, right? You had your line infantry guys, and then you had your your headquarters company and that was your mortars and your scouts and you know camo and and all those you know kind of specialty things so my first year in the army was with an infantry battalion and it was not the cavalry so <laughs> being trained you know when you go in you're, you're you're all of your drill sergeants are are scouts as well which is um you know i think 
different than how it was in World War II. And, you know, you you kind of were assigned a cycle and your first sergeant and your company commander, they they went with you a lot of times, right? Whereas in, in my time, you had drill sergeants that that's where they were, but they had to be 19 Deltas. You were trained by other scouts, which is another thing that's a little bit more unique in the common army because anybody could go to drill sergeant school and you make it and then you're assigned a rotation or somewhere. But we were all trained in the same place and you know by by individuals who were who were proficient in being a recon scout so that was a little bit more unique and then 2003 came around and they started up this unit the colonel our brigade commander wanted to kind of bring back this unit that was really very famous in vietnam um, they were just an air mobile unit and they would fly around in hueys and when something they would just shoot into the jungle you know just talking to these guys at luncheons and stuff it's like blows your mind just hop in the huey grab as many rounds as you can, fly around all day, shoot into the treetops. When something shoots back, you inserted, you took care of it, and you went home. Uh, so just a really unique way of doing things. So that was kind of that mindset that they wanted to bring into this particular unit to be um, kind of a quasi-air mobile, very light, um, you know, can just kind of deploy anywhere at any time kind of thing, and just being a very tight, knit group you know so for for those who never served when you when you think of a company a company sized element you're looking at usually 220 230 guys somewhere in there um a troop is the same thing as a company but that's just cavalry terms you don't have companies and battalions you have troops and squadrons so with our troop having 25 percent of the men you know we had about 50 guys and that's for the whole troop that's your Headquarters platoon, first platoon, and second platoon. So you're looking at at the platoon level, you're looking at 22, 24 guys. So we were very NCO heavy. Almost everybody, non commissioned officer, with the exception uh, exception of a few PFCs and Spec fours, but almost everybody, you know, E fives, E sixes, sergeant, staff sergeant type. I would and, assume uh, that made for a more tight knit, more cohesive group compared to some of the others because I mean, obviously you have everybody you know the command doesn't go that far i mean there's less people in between you know the the private and the and the upper echelon in that tight-knit organization i mean there's less people to you know rely on so you guys had to rely on each other more heavily and obviously when, when you're starting your your mission or your campaign your numbers are already smaller to begin with and that probably goes a lot into planning Absolutely. You're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So training had to be a much more proficient things that the, the, the margin of error was definitely very narrow. And luckily, the first mission that we thought we were going to be tasked with got scrubbed um, because it was ridiculousness. Uh, I'll just say that. But it consisted of kind of an insert team and an outer cordon heavy weapons team. And I was on the heavy weapons team. So um my my job was to just basically destroy anything that was coming at you because it's not your guys at this point. Uh, something, if you're firing, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. Now, um, were, so, did your medics receive the same training, or were they assigned from an out outsourced group? Yeah, they were outsourced. We didn't exactly have a, a medic that was built in the Fox Troop. They were assigned, and they typically would do like kind of a like a rotation almost. We didn't have them for the whole tour. You get guys that just would come from brigade. They'd be assigned from brigade specifically um, because we had no battalion or, or squadron. That next level above company, we we had no squadron. 
we we actually reported we were a company that kind of skipped and, and reported right for the brigade commander. So um, budgeting was much different. Um, I don't remember us having a, a cap on our budget. I just kind of remember like, hey, what kind of combat gear do you guys want? What kind of three-day assault packs do you want? We're going to order this. Um, what kind of weapon systems? You know, I remember like when we first got the SAW, the squad automatic weapon, M249, like that's garbage. No, we're not going to do that. Um, so just being able to roll like that um, was a different experience. And then, of course, like I mentioned in my post, uh, being in one of the first up-armored Humvees to convoy into Iraq was really special to be in, in a truck. You know, a lot of the times those guys were sandbagging the floors and welding whatever steel you could find, you know, kind of like the old Higgins boat. Eh, just throw a quarter inch of steel. It's not going to stop a bullet. It just make the guys feel better. Well, it's know? funny. Well, it's not funny you say that, but it's interesting you say that because I saw a clip on YouTube. No, what it was, I saw a, a short documentary on YouTube. It was apparently um, Vice or NBC, somebody, I don't think Vice was around back then, but somebody was with a group back then and then caught up with those guys now 20 years later and they showed a clip from back in the original documentary and the guy was kind of making fun of his up armored Humvee and he's pointing out the, the shitty armor and he's like this won't kill you but it'll make the bullets travel less into you <laughs> he said make the shrapnel maybe not pass three if it stop halfway so they and the guys were just on the literally on the ground laughing their asses off because you know you kind of have to accept that and that was kind of the joke among the crew yeah this is our up armored it it won't protect us, but it'll slow the shrapnel down. Right. Yeah, it was more like uh, mentally it made you feel good. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so April 1st, like I said, that was kind of that anniversary. And like I said, some of those other commonalities um, with what the first Mardiv experienced hitting Oki because we uh, were replacing the 1st Armored Division, which were they're typically – Back then, they were typically stationed in Germany, and we did um, what you call a, a, a right seat ride and then left seat ride. So basically, right seat rides, if you think of like driver's ed, right seat ride, like, okay, you sit there and you watch somebody do it. And then left seat ride, okay, they're watching you do it to make sure you're you're kind of ready. So there was like a two-week process where we're transitioning. First Armament's trying to filter out, and First Cavalry Division's filtering in. And, you know, we're hearing these war stories from these guys, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, you know. And um, even just the ride up there um, from where we were at in Kuwait, and I'm just assuming all of this is not really classified anymore. <laughs> um, but just the ride from where we were at uh, in Kuwait up to when we were taking uh, Baghdad, there I had this little map drawn, and it was just like a series of checkpoints. And... You know, I wrote down everything, right? I wrote down, okay, if this is pretty good hardball or if this is kind of a rougher dirt road or if it's a, it's a really pockmarked road. You know, those are all things that are kind of – they're kind of important to know. Um, looking at uh, if we have AeroVac assets or would we have to be – would it just be strictly ground? Um, and then there was just kind of these, like I said, just these little indexing points of where we were going to refuel or whatever. And I wrote down um, basically what they told us to expect and on this map. And I don't know if anybody can really see it, but as you're kind of heading north from Kuwait, there's the berm going into Iraq. You know, I'll have acronyms on here that just says SAF, right? So just expecting small arms fire. 
And then after we refuel, there's a lot of IEDs here. And then we're on a hard ball, but it's open area, flat area. So expecting more small arms fire or indirect artillery, things like that, uh, heading up north on MSR Tampa. And um, this top bubble here, 145 danger areas. So when when you draw this out, when you're at the sand tables in Kuwait and you're like, okay, um, you know, don't forget your intervals, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, hundred meter intervals and, and the speed and don't, don't bunch up and then don't start slinking. And I, how we even got there, but not a shot fired 145 danger areas on this trip up North on, on the 1st of April and nothing. And we get to Baghdad and all these guys are telling us all these horror stories. And, and again, I, I think back to, to Henry's father where, you know, they're on Oki and some of these new cats are like, Oh, y'all were really snowing us telling us these hardcore war stories on Peleliu. Yeah. Right. Is this really the war? And I, and I literally, I think I have that. I also kept a journal too. I think I actually wrote that. If this is war, then this ain't so bad. Like that was about the dumbest thing I think I've ever <laughs> written down on a piece of paper because also like Okinawa, not nest, not anywhere close to the severity of Okinawa, but uh, like Okinawa, how it started was not at all what it what it turned into. Or even just as comparable, especially when reading You'll Be Sorry or Helmet from a Pillow, Guadalcanal. They all landed. Absolutely. The guys are just more they got more casualties from knives and bayonets and coconuts than they did from small arms fire, you know, because the landing was clear. It wasn't until right. a day later that they started venturing off that things got crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's just crazy to think it's been, that was 19 years ago uh, this week, and, um, you know, they, they really started hammering uh, where we were at in, through April and May. Um, I don't know, it was pretty pretty relentless as far as, um, you know, taking rocket attacks and mortars and all the things that we had to deal with, a lot of IEDs, the improvised explosive devices, and, and the job that I had protecting our brigade commander, our colonel, being on a seven-man team, anytime anything happened, we had to go. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of that weird, you know, I mean, like the rest of the guys in Fox Street would, would make fun of us because I remember one time in our little rickety chow hall, we called it Crapplebees. bees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody had slammed, there was like a deep freeze Right. And, and somebody just like slammed the door and just the way that kind of that boom, mm -hmm. there were seven of us. <laughs> well, that's and, one of the things know. they mentioned in that documentary is, I guess, because of the lack of sanitation or even trash pickup because of the way they hid IEDs. One of the guys said to this day, he gets nervous driving on the street, seeing a trash can or seeing a trash bag on the side of the road or maybe an empty case of beer or something because they would hide this crap and. Sometimes it was there and sometimes it wasn't. He's saying to this day, him and his wife be driving on the street or walking on the street and he'll walk around a trash can just because he, he gets memories of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they, they would use dead goat carcasses on the side of the road. I mean, driving through hill country around here in Texas, how many times do I see a deer on the side of the road? Mm -hmm. No, I don't think it's going to blow up on me. But, yes, it makes me think of that. And anytime I drive into the big city, um, you know, there was uh, – over there, there were some overpasses, right? There was hardball. There was, like, highways. Um, anytime you went under an overpass, you made sure if you were, say, you're in the right lane going into the overpass, you quick, quickly came out in the left lane 
because, you know, if there's anybody up on top, they could just kind of time it as you're coming down and they were just dropping hand grenades down into the holes, you know, for gunners. Mm-hmm. So I think about that too sometimes, just dynamically going under an overpass and things like that. So, hey, look, like I said, I, I, <laughs> I really wanted to recognize here at the outset that I am in no way comparing my experiences to Henry fa- Henry's father's experience. Well, Jeff, your war is your war, man. I mean, I appreciate yeah, no, you I saying that, that, but... Like you I know. said, it's just there. There's just commonalities of these young guys at war that just so happen to you know happen on the first of April for for guys like me and, and and men like your father. So, you know, I don't I don't want tonight to be about me or anything like that. Well, there's but no, I did. there's nothing wrong with that. We are a military based podcast, and I think much like you know, sure it happened later in life with Henry's fa- father's generation. A lot of the guys didn't talk about because some of the guys were there, but at a certain point, you know, the whole military history thing is to remember people's contributions to war efforts and your war and your contribution is just as important as anybody else's. And when, when, why not a better time to talk about it up to a point that you feel comfortable talking about it than right now. And so, you know, there's no reason to rush through it or to apologize. Henry and I are here for you, man. And so is the audience. And I think a lot of the audience is interested to hear some of the stuff because, you know, there's not, you know, it doesn't get the same, Klieg light, if you want to talk technical for a spotlight, it's the same Klieg light as, as World War II, Vietnam, or, you know, World War One or even Korean War. But let me back up a little bit, um, just because I'm thinking as our listeners and how we feel about World War II, and some younger cats may have the same curiosity. At the time that you guys were deploying, you're talking about how the saw was garbage. What was some of the preferable weapon systems, and what was some of the new technology that guys either wanted to stay away from or wanted to get their hands on? Because obviously, that time and era, there was some new stuff coming out. There's some stuff that was coming out that wasn't so great, and there's stuff that came out that was leaps and bounds over previous equipment. So, what kind of equipment were you guys wanting or wanting to get rid of? No, that's a great question. So, the big one for us, I remember, you know, this was still a time when there was a lot of line units that were carrying around M16s that, you know, we would, we called them muskets, right? Like they just seemed. <laughs> huge compared to the m4 all right so that was kind of that first transition going from the m16 to the m4 everybody in fox troop had an m4 what was the um, barrel length difference was it about four inches three inches i think the m4 is like 14 14 and a half to 20 i want to say the m16 was of course i don't know man that was, it could be 22 i don't i don't even remember but it was it was a considerable difference because not only the barrel length but the collapsible stock mm-hmm you know, really helped shorten it, which I didn't care for that. I like to have the stock out, but um, that was a big deal. And this was that whole transition time too. You know, this is 2002, 2003, really early on where just having a Picatinny rail system was like, yo, this dude's like Star SF. Trek. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So Starship um, Troopers. Right, right. So that was kind of a big thing going from that, that M16A4 to – getting this M4 with a Picatinny and then putting an M68 red dot aim point on top and a PEQ4, which is like an IR. Um, it's just got like a little pressure pad. You could kind of tape it anywhere on your weapon system. I had mine on my magazine well, you know, because that's just kind of how I, I would hold the weapon. But, um, you know, you can pressure pad, you can hit the button, and it would be all all um, all infrared, but it would be like a flood or like a just a dot or both. So, um, you know, having that on the end of your, your weapon system or a nice surefire, just a tack light, um, 
And then, so that was cool. But then we got the ACOG, you know, site that had the fiber optic down the top and all this great stuff. So I remember that was kind of like, now that that's was the hot stuff. The fiber optic is, is interesting. Um, depending on the type of it, I shot, we, my brother and I went to the gun range cause he's down here from Vegas and he has a, um, I think an MMP or, um, he's got, I can't remember the model handgun, but he actually has a little red, the plastic fiber looking thing in the front sight. And it's the first time I ever shot one. And particularly outdoor going from my Glock and my Springfield with standard iron sights to going to that, just that basic fundamental piece of technology. And I remember the first time I ever saw that sort of thing, wasn't even on a firearm back in like the late nineties, early two thousands, you would see displays like cell phone stores or radio shack made out of that same plastic that would capture the light and then it would highlight and it looked like it was plugged in electronic, but it wasn't. It was just taking that light, capturing it and displaying it around the cell phone display or whatever. And to take something that basic and simple, it's one of those things like, what took so long to come up with that? (laughs) To have something that lights up that requires no battery assist is insane. And it works great, especially outside in the bright sun. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was kind of the that kind of learning curve with with the red dots because you definitely there was all these different settings right like a switch like a dimmer Mm -hmm. so you know during the day you're all the way up but then at night you know that would blind you so you gotta have it way down to where you wouldn't even see it if it was on during the day just that faint little Mm -hmm. dot and then yeah you're learning to bore sight this thing so you can qualify with it to where and that was a transition just going from iron sights to just trusting that this little red dot no matter where you move and, and it feels on the target. And he had a red dot on his pistol. And it almost felt like you almost had to look lower down the slide because it's higher than the iron sights. It's like you almost have to adjust your head, even though it's zeroed in. So just yeah. that change, going from iron sights to red sight and having to lower your, your frame of view down the down the slide is all that just I don't know. I figure I would assume at first it'd take a little it would affect your muscle memory a little bit when you're switching between the two. Yeah, yeah. And you know, depending on on the mission, there were there were some other sites there that I remember. There was one called the Raptor. I want to say the nomenclature was like M six four four something like that, but it was this heavy, huge thing that you could put on your M four. <laughs> it was like the size of your rifle, almost ridiculously heavy. But it was an amazing night sight. Um, you know, and then of course I had some really slu- uh, sweet night and day sights for the for the 50 cal but we didn't even really run the 50 cal i think we only had that i only had that up on my truck for maybe a month is that more of a get yourself out of trouble sort of equipment and yeah that was like if you're gonna squeeze off with a maldeuce in a city like baghdad just get ready to answer for the collateral (laughs) yeah so yeah, then we and and I loved the fifty, right? I was just proficient with the fifty, and and I was I was not a big guy, you know, anything like that. I mean, you know, five pushing five eleven, pushing one hundred and fifty pounds, but I could get behind a Maldeuce and knock some targets down at a long ways away. There was just something about that weapon system that I was proficient with, and dropping to the two forty, which is the Bill Fed thirty, was a, a, an adjustment, but. A justifiable one cruising through an urban area like that. Um, then there was one other thing that too. I think we called it the Viper, and I've ever seen one one other time. It was on the movie Mister and Mrs. Smith. Hmm. What what they from the outside, it's the same. What they show you, like as if they're looking in it, like what shows up on the TV screen. Yeah, not exactly what it looked like, but it was this crazy optic that you when you turned it on, you had to. It, there was direction 
that showed up on the lens where you kind of had to like look up and tilt it and look down. And, and once it figured out where it was on planet Earth, then it would start working and you could laze targets like 20 clicks away. Wow. I mean, it, yeah, it was an amazing optic, but definitely not something that was like everyday use in Sodder City or something like that. You know? What sidearm was being issued at that point? Uh, the M9 Beretta. And I, I have one. I love it. People talk trash about it all the time. I don't care. You put a bullet. You put a bullet into somebody. They're gonna. They're gonna be dead. Okay. Like the whole ballistic thing. And, and I love forty fives too, right? I mean, I have a Springfield XD single stack. I love it. I love it. Fits in my back pocket. It's not much. You know, not much bigger than a cell phone. I've got one of those too. I, have I love the, it. I have the original series Springfield X, uh, nine millimeter full frame, and I was I'm just putting down nice little grippings. Of, I, I my everyday carries a forty, but there's when you're out plinking, there's nothing like a nine because you just your target reacquisition's great. It's just boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom, and I love, I love the the nomenclature of the Springfield. I think the biggest advantage of that over Glock is the easy teardown, flip up lever to get that slide off. You're not doing the whole magic trick pulling up two things like you do with the Glock. You just slide it up and <laughs> comes apart. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Breda was the main issue sidearm. And then, of course, we had the what they call the M203, which is your M4, and then it's got the 40-millimeter grenade launcher underneath. Um, and, and there was at least one on every truck. Usually the, the driver would carry the 203 because that was kind of like, eh, not the most desirable thing to carry around. you got these big 40-millimeter rounds in your ammo vest. and Not only that, yeah. but it's kind of another one of those things that in a rough situation, depending on the – on the geography that's just one more thing to get snagged you're trying to put your gun up over a wall or something and that that barrel's just kind of getting in the way it's just one more thing to kind of like when you see those these guys with their their tooled out ar-15s with like 38 different grips on the pick system it's like okay how many do you need just choose one yeah yeah and that's the same like i started really paring down i mean standing up on the gun all day i didn't need to carry any more weight than i you know if i'm gonna dismount I'm I'm already in the truck, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to dismount, I'm going to grab whatever I need and go. Like I don't need to wear it. So you know, there were times where I was really just a just an OTV vest and and some rolled up pant legs in the truck, you know, like it's like ridiculously hot. So Well, that was the um, other question I had for you. Your training stateside versus when you deployed over there, was there any sort of thought or an intermediate area for training to get you guys acclimated to what they knew the heat was going to be like, or was like, Hey, we're just sitting over here. Good luck. <laughs> uh, there was no like weather training. Cause there's nowhere in North America. You can do that. <laughs> um, but we did go to Fort Polk, Louisiana for a month. Nice and humid. And yeah, it definitely got some humidity. Um, it was actually not a bad time of year. We were there November into December, spent Thanksgiving. Oh, three there. Um, but it was that training in urban terrain. There was a couple different um, mock villages there with Iraqi civilians that were brought over and told to basically like, hey, you're going to hang out here, live the way you live over there, which is basically like trash it. <laughs> and then we would, you know, get different missions that would come down like, oh, we're just going to escort. You know, it was all those weird it, it it wasn't like back then, right? Like, um, I need you to grab a Tommy and a BAR, and I need you to kill everything this way. And then when you get there, let us know, right? No, this was, well, 
Um, this particular individual is asking that we provide defense for him as he escorts the bankroll from the bank when it closes to this other place in the city. Like, And there's civilian consideration. And make sure that you're giving out water to the kids. So, okay. Uh, you know, you deal with that, and then all of a sudden there's blank firing stuff going off everywhere. And every time we're trying to shoot back, you don't know where they're at. So then you're like, screw it. I think he was in that room. So you fire your blanks, and there's somebody yelling at you, what are you doing? There was a four-year-old kid in there. Like, okay, cool. We know we can't win this war. This is So be you fun. guys were like on Wells Fargo duty. Yeah, it was just these crazy, like, just all civilian considerations. And I learned a lesson real quick on my Humvee when we're sitting there just – security for whatever it was and i'm the rear facing gunner which was good training because i ended up being a rear facing gunner the whole the whole tour over there <laughs> there's one of the the civilians that comes up speaking in in arabic whatever and he just runs up to my truck pops the hatch big hatch flies open grabs a big case of mres <laughs> just <laughs> runs off all right and they're so those back hatches are so heavy i hop out of the the hole and i'm trying to kick the hatch down but I'm not heavy enough, right? So he's just – they're handing out bottles of water, everything from the back of my truck. I'm like, stop. <laughs> you know, what do you get? You can't like – they're not bad guys. You can't shoot them, right? You can't be trigger happy. So you're just trying to like combat this – all of these crazy things like this is what you should expect. And kids coming up like, oh, Mr. Mr. Chocolate, Chocolate. All right, kid, hang on. Let me get you some candy. And, and then he's like stealing stuff off of your vest and running away like – I was really going to give that kid a candy bar. You Next know, time, I need to put everything on my inside pockets. Yeah, yeah. So it's just stuff like that. Um, the biggest thing we learned was just our posture. You know, um, you think back to the the convoy with, um, oh, what was her name? She became famous when she was captured over there. Just didn't Jessica Biel that, play her in a movie? Probably, yeah. I can't think of her name, but no disrespect to her. But it's just you know when you're in a when you're in a, like a transportation unit or something like that. <clears throat> bottom line, we figured out that the enemy was going to fire or engage vehicles that just had a bunch of antennas, as opposed to right, as opposed to you know three Humvees rolling by and there's two fifty cals and a two forty on top. Like if you have that posture that you are ready to engage. They're probably not going to jack with it. But then it's like, oh, there's a canvas Humvee, you know, with somebody eating Doritos driving by. Like, probably take that one out. Yeah. You know, they, Target they of opportunity. They, they knew that. Yeah. So they basically, I'll say this. And I said on Fox News when I was interviewed that one time via satellite when I was over there that, you know, everything that we had to an advantage was taken away. And and I think Henry's father probably realized that too. And when they were dealing with the civilian consideration on Okinawa, um, he's a mortarman, right? You're not just dropping mortars on civilians mm -hmm. all day. So take that away. It doesn't matter how good of a mortarman you are. It doesn't matter how many rounds you have. That's no longer a factor. Um, so it was the same thing for us, right? I mean, you know, we have the best air force. Well, they didn't fight us in the air. We have the best long-range technology, the best tanks, artillery pieces. They're not fighting us in the middle of the desert. They're going inside the city. Um, we have the best capability at night, so they lay down their weapon at sundown. Um, the, you know, the rules of engagement were very difficult because, essentially, you you could only engage if it was proportionate to the threat. If they come up to you and kick you in the shin, all you can do is kick them back. So what that leads to, and you're probably already kind of figuring this out, is – so they basically have to shoot at you first. 
before you can engage, or you better be real certain that that person is carrying a weapon or has some kind of posture where they are going to engage you or, or somebody that you know in the near future. So, you you know, you have to be able to react like that. So um, they basically brought us down to their level. It didn't matter what I had in the truck, throw it away. Day sights for 50 cal, throw it away. Amazing night sights, throw, throw it in the back, lock it in the back, let somebody steal it out of the back. It, what are you going to do? <laughs> and so I, I got to tell you, that was the most frustrating thing, being in that city, being in Baghdad and having all this capability, like being so proud to be an American. Not that I'm not, but just you know, before you go over there, you're like, dude, this is going to be a turkey shoot. Yeah. Like, look at this and look at what we're seeing on the news. Like there's no way – and then we get there, and it's just like, well, you can't use that. Uh, you're not allowed to use that. Well, don't don't really do that. All right, cool. Anybody bring your slingshots and uh, blow darts? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, that was that. Look familiar? The Iraqi M80 helmet. Um, these really? were more poli- Yeah, when I worked for Stan Haney and K Rock, um, these were more polif- proliferated. Problem, they were bigger in the '80s. Let me give you the brief history for the listeners at home who can't see this. This is the Iraqi mm. M80 helmet. Uh, this military helmet was made of compressed canvas and used by the Iraqi armed forces from the early '80s onward. They were used in the Iran-Iraq War, the uh, Persian Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, and 2003 invasion of Iraq and Operation Iraqi Freedoms. The uh, helmets were originally manufactured and designed in South Korea by Hyundai, the nice car people, um, but then later on were made the 1990s, the Iraqi-made version appeared, which was usually fitted with the distinctive rubber rim later on, which was the M90. But it's kind of hard to see. These, this looks like an M1 helmet liner because that's basically what they're based off of. These are an ultra-thick M1 helmet liner. There's no helmet involved, and it has a very similar webbing system um, one of my listeners, when I worked in radio, he was he brought this back from the Iraq War, and he asked me if I wanted it. And I was like, it has no significance to you? And he's like, no. And, and I didn't know what it was when he was talking to on the air. When he brought it to me, I'm like, this thing looks like a super thick M1 helmet liner. And it's basically what it is. It even has a very reminiscent Vietnam, Korea-style chin strap with the ball and the hook on it. But, yeah, this is what they used all the way up until 2003. And um, it's it, it literally looks like an M1 helmet liner, just super thick. And it's just, uh, you know, they don't use the term fiberglass. They say it's just uh, canvas with uh, fiberglass on it. So let's see here. Cle- clearly drawing inspiration from the American M1 helmet, which first appeared during World War II. It's different significantly and being constructed from compressed layers of uh, fabric coated with plastic. This inevitably offered troops a much lower degree of ballistic protection than the steel helmet or moderate composite helmets such as the PASGT. The M80 liners is a direct copy of the Riddle liner seen in American M1 helmets made in 1972 and used the Type 1 chin strap. The helmets were supplied painted dark green, and as mine is here, this was often overpainted with a desert tan color which had a tendency of rubbing off, much like the one I have in my hand. Um, revealing the original color underneath. They also had a tendency to fray on the edges, showing the layers of fabric used in their construction. And the interesting thing about this one is on the 
webbing inside is a bunch of Arabic writing. Um, obviously, I have no idea what it means, but yeah, when he brought that to me, I was, it was definitely interest, interesting to see how the M1 helmet influenced that helmet they were using over there. And so that is the Iraq M80 helmet. That Yeah, that is interesting to see. Um, I'm having somebody grab mine right now. I brought one home as well. And I it, the liner on the inside or the webbing is not in quite that condition. So that was interesting for me to see. Yeah, it looks like the later war ones, the ones that were made of a cheaper condition, had a rubber gasket around the brim to prevent the separation. So, yeah, here's, here's mine. Um, yep. That's not how it was painted when I got it. Uh, I painted a bunch of profanes to Iraq on it. <laughs> As so one would. I, so, so then I repainted it. Um, but yeah, that's... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yours that's is, all I've got. Yours looks like those M1 helmet liners you see on eBay that I say turn into kids' toys. But yeah, yeah mine has the full, very reminiscent of the Vietnam era liner inside, uh, webbing inside of it. Uh, I wonder where he got it, too, because... Um... I think I snatched mine, and I actually have a picture of my driver wearing it on a mission. Um, I think we got it from the kind of the infamous Cross Sabers area. If you if you saw pictures of those, the the big parade ground for yeah, Saddam's yeah, it's a very very famous and photo, and you see a yeah. lot of Iraq veterans saying, you know, if you if you served, and chances are you drove under this or around this if you were there in the early days. I didn't get Absolutely. the full story behind it. He said. His brother-in-law brought it home, but I think he, I don't know what his position was, but I think they captured somebody, and when they took all his gears, he just kind of threw it in his, wherever he was, his gear was, and just brought it home with him, which is why it ended up in my hands, because the brother-in-law gave it to him, and he had no sentimental value to it, so he just heard I was a military collector and just gave it to me, and so it's just been, it's like the only one of the few non-World War II based military or war items I have in my collection, but I like the significance of it based, you know, the whole coming from the M1 helmet liner aspect of it. Yeah, no, that is cool. And I've got another connection from a, a, one of the previous episodes where we talked about the uh, Japanese swords mm -hmm. that came up, I guess, a couple episodes ago. Um, I uh, This is something else I took from, from the cross. No, I didn't take it. Wait a minute. I, uh, I you acquisitioned it. it. And at this point, I, I, I feel more like I'm uh, curating it. Yeah than anything <laughs> but yeah this um i don't know how this made it home in the mail wow <clears throat> cool thing is you can provide your own prominence to it it uh i don't you know i don't know any kind of story it looks like brass knuckles on the hilt of it i know i was thinking <laughs> yeah, the same really thing does, yeah i could use some brass knuckles um yeah i don't I don't see any kind of maker's mark or anything. Do but you remember how you came across it, or was it just was it on a person? Was it laying about? Yeah, it was just kind of. It was just kind of. There was a couple of them, and yeah, it was just kind of laying about ish. <laughs> <laughs> it was laying about when you got done, and uh, it's just laying about in my house. That yeah. that part I can tell you. Um, but yeah, my, once again, my driver, um, him and I, we uh, we we stuck him in a cardboard tube his and, and, and this one and he said man if we make it home uh this should be at my house when i get back and then i'll i'll bring it i'll bring it to you and so that's what he did and um you know i was just 
I, I got one more quick story. And sure, then we'll, please. Like I said, we've got some stuff that I, I want to cover with Henry. But Plus, we got some mail call. Thank you, guys. Mail Absolutely. call coming up. International uh, mail the- call. Just a little teaser. International mail call coming up. Right, right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was on the phone with, with our beloved Scott Gibson, right, ACAC from the Pacific here, uh, before we, we came on. And it's just... He's such a nice guy, right? Um, just has so many just wonderful things to say. And and I was telling him, um, you know, hopefully get to see him here uh, next month when I when I head over there for, for Normandy. Uh, and talking about his role, I told him, I said, man, I can't, I can't thank you enough, right? Because, you know, until uh, until all of that happened and all your work that you put into being ACAC, unless, unless you read this book, would you know who Captain Haldane was? I don't. I don't know. Garrett, hurry up and get your stuff going, so other people. But you know, I feel like aside from this kind of pop culture following that these series have, would anybody know? And he kept, you know, talking about, you know, appreciating. He's look, dude. I wasn't. I. I didn't serve. And and you know, big. You know, deep respect to what you did and everything. And it's like, you know, I obviously I appreciate it coming from coming from him and you guys, right? Of course. Um, well, and, and but, not speaking for him, but I understand where he's coming from. Once again, especially when I worked in radio, people heard me, like whenever there was a question about firearms or militaries, particularly World War II, the host would bring me on the air and I'd talk about it. And time to time, listeners would call up sometimes and thank me for my service. I'm like, no, 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 no. And so I'm sure Scott's the same way, where it's like people who aren't really familiar with things like, like you, when you're in our position, like me or Scott Gibson or other living historians who never served, we, you know, that's why, for example, I never post any pictures of me and any of my impressions anywhere near any sort of national military, remember, whether it's Memorial Day, you know, anything like that, anything that has to do with honoring vets, you'll never see me posting a picture on, on, on social media of me in a uniform because I don't want people to make that mistake because. It's very important that those who serve get the recognition and not people like me who, you know, have military um, history knowledge. And so I can understand Scott Gibson, you know, wanting to make that clear. You know, I never served, but, you know, it's and so I kind of get where he's coming from, where you really want people who aren't really familiar to to realize, no, I'm not serving. I don't want that misplaced. Thanks. But I'll pass it on for you to those who did. And so I definitely understand him saying that. Yeah, and and I no, I I totally get that. It, it's you know, that's what's compelled me to try to do what I'm doing now, and and getting into some of these roles in film to help keep this stuff alive, right? I mean, that's that's my goal because, and that's why I told I shared with him, you know, losing my best and this driver that I've been referring to multiple times, my my, my driver over there, losing him a few years ago, um, you know, self inflicted. Um, nobody's going to make a movie about Staff Sergeant Charles Anderson. Um, So there's not going to be this pop culture following to know who my driver was and who my best friend in in the service was. Um, And, you know, that's okay. But thankfully, there are these character actors, these series, the money that goes into it, the training, all of the people that have been dedicated, the people who have written the books and the people that have kept it alive. Thank goodness that they're there. And if that is not in some aspect serving your country by keeping these guys alive, I don't know what is. 
honestly. I mean, I, I don't, I never think of, oh, that guy didn't serve. He's a reenactor. He thinks he's 101st, the, the bandwagon of brothers. Who cares? You're, you're, you know, as long as you're not doing any disrespect. And I think for the most part, that's not the case. They're keeping these stories alive. People like Scott and, and other actors have had these amazing opportunities to reach a lot more people. Um, so I just, I appreciate it. And I told him, I appreciate what you did. I appreciate what you're doing. And cause it, it keeps it alive and that's what we're here. That's why we're doing this podcast. And that's hopefully why people are, are listening and, and <clears throat> writing in some of those who write in are, are also keeping history alive. So, um, and on that note, I think that's a good segue into this week's mail call. And before Jeff does his mail call duties, we want to remind you, if you're a new listener, an old listener, a casual listener, and you have a question for us, a question about World War II, or perhaps you have a uh, topic that you know about that we haven't covered, if you want to give us a brief history through email, email us at mailcall at WTSP World War II. That's spelled W-W-I-I, just like on the hardcover books of any World War II books you buy, dot com. That's mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Or if it's easier for you, you can send it directly to us through our Instagram and or Facebook pages. With that being said, Jeff, take it away. Okay, so this first one reads, Loving the podcast, guys. Listening each and every week and really appreciating it. And to Henry, big fan of your father and the work you do to keep his legacy alive. Greetings from Sweden, Sebastian Robertson. Thank you, Sebastian. That's really cool. Nice to, to uh, hear from hear from Sweden. Yeah. Uh, and then our next one reads: Hey guys, just dropping a quick note to say that I love what you guys do as always. I'm looking forward to a new episode every week. Keep up the great work. I also have a question for all of you. So I have currently started on the writing process of my master's thesis about the probabilities of expanding World War II tours, experiences, and experience economy from a Danish and European American perspective. And out of curiosity, I wanted to ask, in your opinion, what are the ultimate do's and don'ts for an organizer of World War II tours or other World War II experiences if they decide to expand, for example, the itinerary of the tour experience or how they impart the historical content to their audience? For example, more technological approaches, etc. And that comes from Camilla. That's a really great question. Man, that's such a great question that I don't know that I could answer that without doing some homework. <laughs> I would say I think out of the three of us, Jeff would be the mo closest to qualified to answer that because of his experience working for museums. But none of us have actually ran a battleground tour. Um, the only thing I can think of off right. the top of my – go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is you really want to – make sure you don't present your tours in your history presentation in any sort of way that could be misconstrued as sort of a Disney-esque type, you know, environment. I don't know how else to say that, you know, you just want to, you know, I don't know. Cause for example, I think it wasn't too long ago, there was a story that came out where um, some enterprising people over in France wanted to kind of open up, for lack of better term, a World War II-based amusement park, which is the phrase they were using in these articles. And rightfully so, some people had some very serious questions about the seriousness in which they were going to approach the subject matter. <clears throat> and it, it got to be a, a thing. And, you know, a lot of people had some serious questions about that. And, you know, 
not abusing the subject matter and turning it into a, you know, a entertainment type thing and, you know, keeping the, the love and the true value of the history and the reality of the horrors of war, not turning it into a entertainment type venue. You know what I mean? And so that's the only thing I can really say. Cause once again, I've never even done a battleground. I would love to, um, this may be something that Jeff can revisit after he takes his trip. But, um, other than that, I think Jeff, other than, you know, just Jeff's experience operating and working at museums, I think between the three of us, as I said earlier, he's probably the most qualified to answer that question. Can, can I weigh in on Please, that absolutely. Quick, I, the other thing I would add to what uh, Don said would be, you know, you're, you're probably like you pick an area or a, a specific battle or, you know, you pick your lane and you want to do something on that. There, there's probably already going to be something being done similar to it or close to it. And I, I would say, and I'm kind of thinking of Peleliu here because when I was there, I met a few people. I've had people reach out to me. You know, I would say don't, if you can, a lot, be an ally of what's already going on, but, but definitely do your own thing. But don't, don't try to go into an area and say, well, you know, so-and-so, he's been covering this area for a while, but I think he's, he's missing this and this. I think he's wrong. I, I want to do it better. I mean, it's okay if you can do it better, but, you know, try use the resources around you to try to make it as informative. Because really, I think in the World War II community, like on this podcast, we support each other. Mm-hmm. We, we try to lift each other up and advance. Like you already said, Jeff, we have the same purpose here, which is to remember this history and, and uh, inculcate an appreciation for it. So, you know, yeah, don't draw and, a battle on. Yeah, go ahead. No, I th- yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And I'm just going <laughs> to I'll answer that kind of that last part of the question with her, for example, uh, more technological approaches. Um, you know, that's definitely one of those things in the in the museum world. Again, yeah, none of us here have have led a, a, a World War Two, you know, battlefield tour, but um technology is definitely one of those things where you kind of are stuck with it and you just be mindful how to use it. And I would think use it to your advantage, but don't overuse it to where it becomes a disadvantage. And I'll give you an example of our last time that I was there with the family where we went, y'all know I'm a big Elvis fan going through Graceland. Now going through Graceland now, today, they're going to yell at you if you don't have your headphones on, and they hand you a tablet, and the whole tour is narrated by John Stamos, which is great. Um, so what you <laughs> say some Greek yogurt you, in a let's say, gift closet. <laughs> you, you, you walk in through the front door, and you walk in, and you're looking at the living room, okay? And you're listening to John Stamos, and there's things happening on your tablet to where you know you can you can kind of like almost like you're scanning a QR code. You kind of hold the tablet up to the living room, and something will highlight over here. And oh, that's the sunburst clock that Elvis's best friend George Klein gave to him, right? Oh, oh, that's cool. Oh, there's a video of Elvis sitting in here when he first got home from the army, and then the dining room. So what it's doing is this is how people are going through Graceland. Yeah, so they might as well just sit at home and watch the virtual tour on a computer. Hmm. absolutely and you know it kind of was almost to me 
uh, kind of ironic because if you know anything about Elvis, you know he was scrutinized a lot in the early days for the way he was moving. And he said if I got on stage and didn't move a muscle, well, people could just sit at home and listen to my records. Yep. So don't take that experience away. I mean, look at look at pictures, still photos went from people. You know, if you look at a picture in the end zone at a Super Bowl, there's you know a thousand people in the stands like this. Yeah, or even concerts. When I worked in radio, film it, right? When I worked in radio, we'd we'd have these two day festivals. You know, you'd go up on stage in front of sixteen thousand people, or you would sit on the side, and everybody's just staring at it through their phone. It's like, first off, you're going to go home and play that, and the sound quality is going to be complete, absolute trash. It's just your speaker can't handle it. But two, you're not you're looking at a live concert through the lens of your phone. You paid for the experience, so put the phone away. Trust me, um, if it's a quality concert, there's going to be professional-grade videos that they're putting up themselves as a production company that you can watch later. Um, enjoy the experience. Don't watch it through your phone. And you pay for it, so yeah. share it for free with everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> Let them pay. So that's my very small, limited advice to Camilla that, you know, it's about an experience. Make sure that they experience it. The technology can be a good, um, you know, it can be a good asset. But if not used carefully, it can be a disadvantage. So I would say make sure you balance your technology and make sure people come away with an experience, not something that, you could see through social media real quick on the topic of concerts um back in 1999 i think kiss kicked off their psycho circus torts when they went back on tour my roommate at the time was like the world's biggest kiss fanatic and he made the proclamation we're living in columbus ohio wherever kiss starts off this tour i'm going to go see him live he's thinking new york or detroit you know not too far travels from columbus ohio two weeks later they announced dodger stadium on halloween he's like crap so he drug me out there. We went and saw Kiss. It was a great time. I'm not a big Kiss fan, but it was a good concert. Fast forward, oh, I don't know, 2008, 2010. This is when I knew I was starting to get old. The concert that I saw at Dodger Stadium was being presented on VH1 Classics. <laughs> I called Brad and said, we're all dead. The concert we were at in the audience is on VH1 Classics. <laughs> I was like, that's when I knew I'm getting up there in age. And so that was a, just a, a funny thing to see on TV. He's like, yeah, I was... Up there, but no, I'm on the classics edition, not even the mod, not MTV or VH1, but VH1 classics. So, yeah, I'm getting up there in age. But, um, the technology thing, I saw another cool post. It was a, a museum, and obviously, museums you're limited to your square footage and floor space. And one particular thing, depending on how the final product is done, once again, we saw a photo, I didn't see the actual thing, but they had people kind of in this corner with VR glasses on. I don't know if they're watching. I'm assuming maybe it was a walkthrough of a battleground or something, but this particular museum had some VR glasses where people were kind of looking around, experiencing what particular, you know, scene, set, or time period this museum was representing. But, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing. Because as we've talked about before, especially with the younger kids, and maybe this is something that she has to consider, you know, obviously a battleground tour is cool and it's kind of interactive, but once again, you're looking at empty fields. You're looking at trees that weren't there 80 years ago. And with these younger cats, um, you know, they sometimes they need interaction. So you may have to sort of build some technology-based stuff into that. But obviously, you're going to be limited to the the transport. So that's kind of a, a tricky question because you gotta you gotta be moving around. 1999 was the year I was born. Yep, that's what Jay Rocker said on on YouTube. So I'm definitely feeling old. <laughs> he was born two three years after I graduated high school. But yeah. 
Well, so I've got one more final thing Please. for Henry. And because, man, uh, I was way off. And I'll admit it. I'll man up. Last time we were talking about the kind of the confusion with, okay, Akak, uh, his replacement mm -hmm. uh, being uh, Lieutenant Stanley, not really getting kind of that forefront in the Pacific uh, at all that you would expect. Okay, you go from one company commander to then the next guy is just kind of like, who who was he? So, again, my first few times watching it was like, oh, it was that that fresh-faced lieutenant that was kind of, you could tell, fresh out of OCS and whatever. Of course, that was not the case, right? This was Lieutenant Mack, who was, I guess, more a platoon leader, mortar uh, team leader of some sort mm -hmm. than, than, uh, than a company commander, of course. So I think I made the, the comment that where, you know, you, you, maybe they kind of shunned Mac a little bit in the series to not really take away from Captain Haldane. You don't, you know, you have these two competing heads and you definitely don't, I don't think they would want to overstep Akak while still trying to maintain accuracy, right? Like, how do you do that? I probably said it seems like Mac's not really all that bad of a guy. <clears throat> and then I kept reading. And and that guy was an idiot. No, I've been taking it back. <laughs> the guy was very immature. Uh he 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 clearly had the um the ability to be a, a Marine Corps officer uh and, and pass OCS. You know, no no simple task. But the things that this guy did on the battlefield. Oh my gosh. Um, one that I remember now was he, let me see if I can, if I can demonstrate here. Let, let's grab a hand grenade <clears throat> and just for funny ha-has, mm -hmm. we, we will, we will dump out the powder and leave just the charge in there. Mm -hmm. And, oh, this will be a fun prank. I'll a... just pull the pin and the blasting cap will, you know, somebody will see this rolling next to them as they're eating their K rations. Throw it into a circle and of the guys. the blasting cap will go off and ha-ha. Okay, now I will say that on the set of Walking Point, and Don may remember this, that's exactly how I introduced myself to the two Japanese <laughs> actors. <laughs> if you remember, I kind of <laughs> pulled a pin and I rolled a grenade at their feet no blasting cap or anything right just to get a reaction from them but this one particular time lieutenant mac didn't dump all of the powder out no because it has a tendency to stick to the insides and this grenade goes off and my goodness the consequences of that could have been disastrous mm -hmm. um another time where he was just getting some target practice in so he figured that he would shoot the head of a penis off of a dead japanese soldier is that Jeff, is that where my dad said that was like the most disgusting thing you'd ever seen a, a Marine officer? No, that was when he urinated into a, a mouth. Urinating into their mouth. And he said that yeah. was the most shameful thing he'd ever seen a Marine Corps officer do. Right. So, okay. So for those of you who probably just kind of bit your lip and like, you know what, we'll just watch. We'll wait for Copsetta to kind of finish reading a little bit more before we open the big fat mouth on this podcast. And Oh, yeah, Lieutenant Mack doesn't seem like a real bad guy. I was way off. And then there's those who said, I don't remember that scene from the HBO miniseries. There's a reason why you need to read the book, ladies and gentlemen, because there's some things yeah. that didn't make the transition. My goodness. 
Yeah. My goodness. And, and Henry brought it up. Oh, the bravado. He was going to put his K-bar in his teeth and charge the enemy with a forty-five as soon as one of their guys got hit. And then uh, I think your father and Snafu were were kind of razzing him a little bit when after first, the first couple guys got hit, he's busy digging a hole to China to yeah. hide in. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's, there's another little unpublished tidbit. I was trying to see if I could get to it in book four of, of this all this stuff that I I can't get to it quick enough, but uh, my dad kind of pulls a prank on him one night, just messing with him a little bit because he knew he would kind of react really strongly. So, um, ooh, ooh, but yeah, that's Mac a teaser was, for next week's episode for those who joining in. Yeah, so. no, I'm not going to get into it, Tommy, I mean, because you know I'm not. Well, yeah, save some of that, but man, that's yeah. So I, I was I was way off. Don, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about this before we left tonight. Yeah, so we're going to be doing. We're going to start doing a few things around here. Um, one is going to be our way of saying thank you to those who sign up for Patreon because that is the primary source of any. I don't want to say income because it's not an income. It's it's the primary source to making us break even. Um, it helps to pay for our overhead. Um, you hear people who get in a podcast and say, you know, stuff ain't cheap because you got to. Long story short, you got to pay for web hosting. And once your show starts to pick up, they start charging you because your bandwidth usage and your ser- and sort resource usage on servers, and they they move you down the line, and your your web hosting gets more and more expensive. So, one of the primary um, contributors to how we break even on this show, and to help pay the bills to keep the show running every week, is those of you who sign up on Patreon, and we do the sticker giveaways, and we do shirts and this and that and one of the things we're going to start doing consistently is we're going to start doing monthly giveaways and all you have to do to be entered into these monthly giveaways is simply be a patreon subscriber now we don't care if you're signing up for the dollar a month the 750 a month the 350 a month just you sign up it's our way of saying thanks and we're going to do giveaways and then on the side to make it fair to all listeners you know not everybody who wants to sign up for patreon who can we're going to also have things that are available um, for purchase for people outside, just for everybody. And uh, we're going to get into the outside purchase here soon. But right now, we are in, in cahoots with um, a person that Jeff had promoted, and that is Warbird Coffee. And we finally got around to, and if you guys follow us on Facebook and Instagram, um, we finally got the What's the Scuttlebutt Coffee mugs available for you guys, along with our T-shirts and some of the other things. And so one of the first things we're going to do, and it'll probably be a month from now because, well, seeing how the fact that three of us live in three different states and there's some shipping and handling involved and some shipping time, we got to mail this thing back and forth to each other. Uh, one of the first giveaways we're going to do on Patreon is we're going to do an autograph What's a Scuttlebutt podcast mug teamed up with a bag of Warbird coffee. And so we're going to be doing a Cup of Joe giveaway and that probably happened maybe a month down the road from now, just because once again we got to get the mug. I got to sign it, send it to Henry, sign it, blah blah blah. We got to get the coffee in, and so that's going to be the first giveaway, and one of the non-Patreon related giveaways. Something we're going to offer as a limited series. We're only going to do it once. We're not going to do this every month on this particular item because we want these things to be limited series so that people who have the ability to get to them will kind of put them in their collection. They'll be kind of collectible because it's going to be a limited run. And I thought one of the cool things we can do that's World War II related that um, is kind of cool is we're going to offer up, and we haven't come up with a number yet. It's going to be a low number. Once again, we want this to kind of be something cool that you guys can add to your collection. 
And that is the first item we're going to start that's not a Patreon-based thing. It's going to be autograph in blocks. And so we're going to come up with a a minimum number of end blocks is going to have Jeff Copsetta's autograph taken up one whole side. And then on the other side, we're going to have mine and Henry's real small. Actually, I'm thinking about my signature is such a chicken scratch. I think I can get away with signing the back where the ridges are. So chances are Henry's will be on one side. Jeff's will be on the other side. And I'll put mine on the bottom where the ridges are because mine's literally a D with a line and an A with a line. So I don't need a whole lot of room because I can't write by hand. I'm a computer guy. And so that'll be up soon. Uh, once again, with shipping times, getting these things signed and shipped and, and all that, that'll probably be a month from now as well. So keep an eye out. We'll have those listed on the website. And we're going to come up. We haven't come up with a select number yet. But it, once again, that's going to be a minimum thing because, you know, something like that, um, that people are going to want to buy. We're not going to say, oh, well, we're going to make another run next month. You know, we're going to do limited series of different items that people can purchase. And once again, there these aren't things that we're doing to liner pockets these are all things that we're trying to do to raise revenue to help uh, not only produce the show but to advertise so we can you know get our name out there we love you guys all of our all of our listenership comes through grassroots all of our people come here by word of mouth social media posts we don't do any paid advertising yet you know we're not running ads on youtube or spotify or pandora <laughs> we like to and so these are ways we're coming up with to make a little bit of money to help us grow the show through advertising through third-party sources. So I don't want you guys thinking, oh, they're, they're trying to sell stuff to blind their pockets. No, we're just we're trying to come up with ways to help grow the show, build our audience. And not only that, but um, the bigger our show gets, the more people hear about it, the more likely we'll get even you know, more interesting guests on because one of the things that – one of the hurdles we have to do, and Jeff and Henry and I have done it, Hey, we want you to come on our podcast. What is it? Oh, it's a, what, what, what's that? So we have to explain, yes, we have an audience and we're here. But, you know, we want to grow our show just like any radio show, like any podcast. And so these are things we're going to do, uh, giveaways through Patreon as a, as a thank you, and ways to um, help build the show by selling cool artifacts that are going to be World War II-based and our show-based. And um, these are just little things that, you know, we, we put out there and hopefully you guys find it interesting. And, and I hope you guys are down for it. You guys have anything to add to that? I, I just jump in and say thank you to Camilla and to the other wonderful listener who emailed us. Sebastian. I, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm, I mean, heck yeah, I think it's a great idea to promote things. And we so much appreciate folks reaching out to us. And as we said last week, our shirts, you know, that's our way of getting, you know, you guys can, and, and if you ever read our description on our shirt, it's, hey, Tell the world how much you love our podcast by showing our wearing our shirt or drinking it from our coffee mug. So these are just ways to, for you to enjoy our products and for us to get the word out as well. And we're excited about it. Um, and you know we we wanted to help build our, our community here on a show and make you guys feel like you're part of something as well. And so I kind of thought by getting a piece of our getting a piece of our show out to you guys in a tangible form will, might be pretty interesting and exciting for you guys, the listeners as well. And so Jeff has started. He's he's signing them. I'm going to sign some, and we're going to send some opposite directions, and the two shall meet. And uh, we're excited about it. So I thought the inbox is kind of a cool thing to start out with. Nothing says World War II like an M1 Garand inbox. And then um, as we go on, it'll be be more um, interesting to come up with new ideas. But we're we're going to keep it. We're uh, we're um, committed to it, and um, 
So yeah, we're excited for that as well. And speaking of products, as you see, I got my What's the Scuttlebutt hat. Jeff has a shirt on. And so those products are available. You can go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. And right on the underneath the header, you'll see where it says um, support the um, I think it says support the war, support the effort. You click on that, it'll take you to our store. All of our shirts are on there, all the original shirts, the new shirts, coffee mugs are on there. I think there's some towels on there. And uh, yeah, and that's where you'll go later on as we roll out the inbox. It'll be right on our website. Just go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. As far as the Patreon stuff, you can go to our website and there's a Patreon link, or you can just go to patreon.com and look for digital 410 media. And um, that's what we're planning on doing. Yeah, and I'll tell you, those mugs look sharp. I ordered two. Um, I got the the gray one for my wife, and then I got the black. And the, let me tell you, the the black—it's just like your hat, right? Yeah. It's just just that black mug with the white lettering that pops. And and I, and you brought this up, I think, before too. It's not just like you're holding your mug, and there's just a little symbol here. Like, no, it's wrapped it, around. It wraps. Yeah. So right-handed, left-handed, however you hold it. You're going to really display WTSP for us with that coffee mug. So, real excited about that. I wish they had an OD green, but they don't. Closest I can get to Kelly Green. So, there is a Kelly Green version available. Once again, this is through a, a vendor that basically says, Here's what we have. You can put your logo on. So, maybe down the line, they'll, they'll offer up an OD green. And as soon as it does, we'll be happy to put one out there. But there's a black one, a blue one, a gray one, a Kelly Green one. And I had to go back and restart it because I actually used up a spot on a white on white. I'm like, how that going to work? I didn't want people to think it was one of those. You've seen those coffee mugs that change color when they heat up. And I didn't want people to think. Right. So I had to go and restart that. So, yeah. A mood mug. Yeah, a mood mug. Uh, <laughs> hyper color. <laughs> those shirts didn't last long. I want a shirt that changes color with my sweat stains. <laughs> That's exactly what they were. That was a little bit before Jeff's time, I think. Do you remember hyper color t-shirts, Jeff? Yeah, of course yeah. I do. And they still have them. Do they? They still make them, yeah. Oh, I haven't seen one since '93. It's, well, it's the same. It's the same technology, but my kiddos—they got it from a. a uh, my parents got it for them from a dinosaur park, and you go outside. I got gotcha. this huge thing of this like cartoon dinosaur shows. If you go inside, it just looks like a white T-shirt. Gotcha. Yeah, I had a, when yeah. that movie. Um, it was a magic base movie came out when I worked at the radio station. They sent us one, and so when you. When you put your coffee mug in, the logo came showed up. When you put the hot coffee in, it was temperature based, and the logo for the movie would show up. When you drank it, it would, it would go away. But yeah, so that's what we got going on. And um, and as we said before, please head over to YouTube, look for uh, D Four Ten Media, and uh, follow, subscribe, and watch the videos. And those will go a long way to help support the cause and what we're doing here. Um, I don't know if we need to do a what you're reading. I think we're all still reading the same books, right? I'm just I'm three quarters of the way through the John Basilone story. I think uh, Jeff's almost done with uh, with the old breed. Uh, yeah, I am, and like I said, I'm taking taking it slow. But I did want to bring uh, something else that I am reading real quick. I just got this in the mail. I subscribed to World War II magazine, and it comes out like every other month, right? Nice. So it's kind of few and far between. But it's quarterly what was interesting now. Of, oh, it's quarterly now. Jeez, yeah, it is quarterly now. Yes. Um. So on page 58 of this latest edition. It's almost like they're listening to the show. So, but when I, yeah, exactly. But when I, uh, when I opened this up, you know, I saw it on the front, like, oh, what's this? Oh, okay. Let me go to the, right to that page. And I saw Bomber Boys, John Slemp. And I went, wait a minute. So when I got that coffee from Warbird, um, they sent me a little advertisement, like a little postcard about this new book called Bomber Boys by John Slemp. And it's all about World War II flight jacket art and the guys that wore these bomber jackets. 
And so it looks like it's a beautiful, and there's some more pictures. Uh, it Ugh. looks like it's just a beautiful, this is like a coffee table type book, right? Mm -hmm. This is not, it, it seems like it's a larger book, beautiful prints, lots of color fo uh, photos. And, you know, I've already been on the website and I talked to John at, at Warbird. I said, do you, do you know this guy? He goes, yeah, you know, and you check it out. Looks like it's going to be a really, really awesome book. And um, I, I'm not going to say it's, it's a ridiculously cheap book either, but it looks like it's probably worth, you yeah. know, for, for these high quality photos. And I, I wanted to share just this one caption. So if you think like, okay, well, who cares? The jackets like, that's cool. They painted them. All right. But when you, when you really want to do a deep dive in the story. So the, this particular one was worn by Robert M. Mitchell Jr. He was a ball turret gunner in B 17 and flew a total of 34 missions. Wow. On his last mission. He swapped aircraft at the last minute to fly with his buddies. The aircraft he was originally supposed to fly in was shot down in front of him, and Mitchell saw the ball turret falling away from the aircraft. He returned home to his wife shortly afterward and lived into his mid-90s. You want to and talk about some there. survivor guilt? Wow. You know, it's funny. We were talking about the jackets and stuff on the last podcast, and I was... During the show, I was doing some Google image searches, and well, the internet being what the internet is, is now on my YouTube and my Facebook and Instagram. We're getting all these advertisements for reproductions of those jackets and all that stuff because you know Google can't let a good good search go to waste. And so now I'm seeing a lot more of those jackets and reproduction versions popping up in advertisements on all my social media because I I bothered to do a search for them one day to to get an idea of what they looked like. But um. Yeah. Jeff, do you got anything coming down the pike you want to promote? Not uh, not right now. How about you, Henry? No, not right now. Well, myself, I don't have anything wrapping up either other than my dog sitting here snoring, and uh, she's about ready for bed. And so, as always, we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And as we said earlier, please head over to, let's, please head over to d-410.com or wtspworldwar2.com and click on that Patreon link or click on the social media link which will give us give you links to all of our you know Henry's Facebook page his Instagram page Jeff's Instagram page our mine as well as our YouTube channel and please go like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and that'll go a long way to support what we do here but until then we will see you all next Monday this has been a digital 410 production <laughs>